From the WNET Group in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our content. For the last seven seasons, it's been my great joy to be your host, bringing you a wide range of guests, about 57 episodes in all. Well, this month, I'm saying goodbye to my professional home of over 35 years, and I have some great news for you. Starting today, your new host is Alisa Lichtenbaum. Alisa, welcome to your new role with WNET Up Next. Thank you, Tom, and congratulations on the exciting new chapter in your life. We miss Thanks. you already. <laughs> Thanks. You know, Alisa, I know that you're not new to the WNET group. You've been on staff here for, I think, over 20 years. You're perhaps best known for being the editor of our monthly 13 program guide. Yes, that is absolutely true. I'm the editor of the 13 member guide. So if you're a member of WNET, you hopefully get this lovely playbill-sized program guide in the mail every month. I'm also a lifelong lover of WNET. I grew up in Brooklyn and watched our wonderful programming growing up, and I've seen you on air, and now I've seen you in person, and all these years later, I'm still starstruck. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. <laughs> and I know you pretty well now that theater is really a, a great passion for you that started very early, I understand. Yeah, you know, having the proximity to the city. Um, I remember seeing the original production of 42nd Street. It opened in 1980, ran for several years. And that moment in the opening number where first you see the curtain raises just a little bit and you see the dancers' ankles and then you see their knees and then eventually the curtain completely raises and you see this magnificent vision of like a hundred dancers on stage, tap dancers on stage, tapping up a storm. And to this day, decades later, it's still one of my most magical experiences as a theater goer. Hard to talk. And led to some uh, tapping on your own? Yeah, yeah. I take tap dance classes. I am not a professional, but I do take tap dance classes. It's, it's just such a joy to be able to do it. And as long as my middle-aged body will put up with the abuse, I will continue to do it. It's such a joy to be around that inspiring energy. Your prime talent, I know, is as a writer. And in addition to being editor of the Program Guide, you've done a lot of interviews for the Program Guide, but you also write about arts and culture for some of our other websites. Can you tell me about that? Yes. I've written about, for instance, with Broadway's Best recently airing on Great Performances. I did a Which Sutton Foster Character Are You quiz to promote and generate some fun buzz for the presentation of Anything Goes that we aired starring Sutton Foster. Five famous actresses who played Reno Sweeney. That was another one of my other recent articles. And the, the fun discovery from, from researching that article was that Ann Miller, if you remember Ann Miller from the mm -hmm. MGM days, ta speaking of tap dancing, right, um, who could tap up a storm, she was in a production of Anything Goes at the Muni in St. Louis, Louis, Missouri. And during one of the performances, I think it may have been opening night, this moving wall or moving set fell on her or something and mm. gave her a big concussion. And she claimed, she, she did all these great interviews where she claimed that her big gigantic wig saved her life because there was like a metal pin in the set. And had it not been for that wig, Anne would be no more. So, so be careful uh, on what costumes you choose. I ex ex always wear a wig, I think, is the moral of that story. <laughs> Well, Elisa, it's great to talk to you, and I think it's about time for me to uh, say one last thank you to our listeners and all the terrific people who have helped to make this podcast possible. So it's about to be yours. Let me count you down. Five, four, three, 
two, one. You're on. From the WNET Group in New York, hi, I'm Elisa Lichtenbaum, and welcome to WNET Up Next. If you love Broadway, and who doesn't, you're in for a treat, because our guest today is Oren Jacoby, Oscar-nominated director of On Broadway. The Broadway journey has so much history attached to it. And we need to remember our history. All of it is important. All of it has to be looked at. A documentary that looks at the incredible way Broadway bounced back from the brink of bankruptcy and a myriad of other challenges from the 1960s to the present. On Broadway makes its PBS broadcast premiere on PBS stations across the country in August. Welcome to the WNET Up Next podcast, Oren. Thank you for inviting me, Elise. It's great to be here. I'm very excited to be talking about what is definitely my favorite subject, Broadway. It was a real treat to watch your film. It's an incredible testament to the resilience of Broadway and show people. It's a wonderful, fascinating slice of New York City history. What inspired you to do a film about Broadway's incredible rebirth from the 1960s to the present? Well, I, I'm always drawn to ideas for films when there's a story that's sort of staring you in the face, that you think you know the story, but it turns out you only know the kind of surface story. You know what's obvious, but there's something else hidden beneath that. And I grew up in New York. I've been going to theater since I was a young teenager, or probably even before that, steadily going to plays through my life and loving the theater, working in the theater, getting to know many artists and others involved in Broadway. And I was still really clueless about how Broadway worked and that didn't understand there was a kind of an ecosystem that exists on Broadway that functions and keeps it going. And it was a, really a complete accident. I was at a New Year's Day party that I go to every year on the Upper West Side at a friend's apartment. And someone said to me, you know, you should go over and talk to that elderly woman. She wants to make a documentary based on her late husband's book. And I said, oh, well, who was her late husband? And it was Jerry Schoenfeld, who'd been the impresario, who was one of the most important people in the American theater for a long time. Uh, and so I was very curious to meet Pat Schoenfeld, his wife. And so I went up and said hi. And we started talking. And she indeed wanted to make a film based on Jerry's memoir, which is called Mr. Broadway. So I read Jerry's book, which is a wonderful memoir. And I realized, you know, after a few pages that he was an unusual, strong, interesting personality, but he wasn't around anymore. This had been published posthumously, but there was a great story in this book that Broadway had almost gone out of business and that New York had almost crashed because of Broadway in some sense, because the neighborhood around Times Square had gotten so bad the theater business was in decline. People stopped going to plays. Without Broadway, New York City really couldn't make it. And so when the theater died, the city almost died in the 1970s. And anybody who lived here then in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, can remember that, how, how bad it was. You would be in a situation sometimes where every theater on 45th Street was dark. There wasn't product for them. They put up these signs on the marquees of all the theaters that didn't have shows. And it said, see a Broadway show just for the fun of it. People were running away from the city. New York was careening towards bankruptcy. The theater business kind of pulled up its socks and figured out a new way to organize itself and a new way to find talent. 
and opened up its arms in a way it had never done before to all kinds of people and all kinds of plays that made it a very different environment. Jerry's book and another book that Pat shared with me, Razzle Dazzle by Michael Riedel, who we interview in the film, who was kind of a, a protege of Jerry's. He was one of the many, many people in, in show business who kind of learned their profession hanging out in Jerry's office in the Schubert building. He was open, he was a great, great storyteller apparently, and he loved recounting his adventures and other stories about Broadway. And people like Michael Riedel had learned his history and learned the business through him. And Michael Riedel very generously was willing to share a lot of that with us for the film, as were the other people that we interviewed. Yeah, and it's interesting that at the whole time that you were recounting this, I was thinking of Michael Riedel and his book and just how crucial the larger socioeconomic and cultural patchwork of New York City factored into the pivot that Broadway made during that decade. And then you have this wonderful explosion of incredible talent and incredible groundbreaking shows like A Chorus Line and Pippin. I think it was Daniel Sullivan who said, it just requires such an astronomical amount of money to get a show up, but we have to do it. What did you learn about those financial challenges, the logistical challenges of making Broadway happen? As David Henry Wong says in the film, uh, there's a Broadway is a real balance of art and commerce. And Jerry Schoenfeld had a great line that he used to say that Broadway was competing with all these other forms of entertainment, television shows, movies, now with the internet, video games, and sports, all kinds of sports on so many platforms. In New York, I think there are 16 professional sports teams and all the colleges, they're all competing with Broadway. And they're all just entertainment. Broadway is entertainment, but it also, it has this legacy, this thing that it has to live up to, that it's this seat of American culture. I mean, Broadway in the 30s through the 50s was sort of the pinnacle, not just of American artistic and commercial achievement, but intellectual achievement. It's where the great minds, the great playwrights like Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller, it's where people look to for the stirring things that would change society. And I think, you know, as, as focused on, you know, the business side as someone like Jerry Schoenfield or the Schuberts have to be, Jerry said, look, we understand we have to do both. You know, the real lesson that I learned from making this film was that the most important thing about Broadway is that it's built to survive. And, you know, that partly reflects the people who are in charge and sometimes they're paying more attention, doing a better job. I mean, one reason it dropped in the 60s was the two Schubert brothers who had run the place for 70 years were, you know, getting so old, they were out of touch with the world and they didn't care that much and they were fighting with each other. And so they kind of let the business drop. And it was a new generation with new ideas who were able to be more open. And that's kind of the story that we tell in the film. Well, and speaking of new ideas and new discoveries, one of the most exciting moments in the documentary for me was learning that Annie, the musical that is so beloved and has had X number of revivals and tours, originated at Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut, which I did not know. And that Mike Nichols was the one who said, hey, got a, got a gem here. In any research or anything I've read, I've never come across it. And that was just so exciting to discover. And I think especially lovely listeners, those of you who have been to Goodspeed Opera House, it's this wonderful, beautiful, adorable gem of a theater where they do these top-notch productions. Who knew that you know, Broadway's favorite orphan 
uh, started there. Like all the stories in our film, we could only kind of just dip into how rich the story is. I mean, the the idea of Mike Nichols, who by then, you know, revered as this great auteur of American cinema and had done heavyweight things of, you know, the movie of uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate, which had sort of changed society, that he would, this little comic strip musical, it showed that Mike, at essence, he was an entertainer. And I love the story that we tell in the film that uh, the producers of the film at the, at the Nederlanders, they were willing to produce the film, never produce the play, never having seen it, just because Mike was saying this will be a hit. He wasn't directing it. He wasn't going to be, he wasn't the writer, but he was the guy who knew he could doctor it and make it a Broadway hit. I can't even imagine something like that happening these days where some, you know, sight unseen, something would be bunk, right on Broadway. I know that you mentioned that you grew up going to the theater. What was your entree into the theater? When I was probably like 12 years old, I went to Broadway and saw James Earl Jones in The Great White Hope. And it was wow. still to this day, one of the most memorable, the most searing experiences I've had in a theater. And I didn't understand that, that a live performance had that power, that it could get into your, your being. And then I went on, you know, that drew me back to the theater and I would, and I particularly love plays and I, I read Eugene O'Neill's plays and there were some great revivals of his plays in the 70s. Robert Ryan and Geraldine Fitzgerald did Longest Journey into Night. The great Jason Robards and Colin Dewhurst did an, a wonderful moving revival of, of A Moon for the Misbegotten. I loved the British plays that started showing up in New York especially Tom Stoppard's plays, Travesties and Jumpers with Diana Rigg, who was already a favorite from watching her in The Avengers on TV. Maggie Smith, who was in Prime of Miss Jean Brody, Albert Finney in A Day of the Death. There were these great actors and plays coming from England as we tell the story in the film. But when I was about 18, I saw two plays that just literally changed my life. Sisway Bonzi is Dead and The Island were two plays that were ran in repertory. And they were both collaborations between the South African playwright, Athel Fugard, and the actors who were in the show, John Connie and Winston Shona. And they were about the struggles of these artists, two black men and one white man living in South Africa under apartheid. And they showed me that you could make a great work of art out of the real things happening around us in contemporary life. And you could change the way people see the world. And that's what led me to want to get training in the theater and eventually what persuaded me to become a documentary filmmaker. And it's what led me to the Yale Drama School where Fugard was working regularly. That was sort of his laboratory where he would write a play sort of in his kitchen in South Africa and then he would bring it to New York. And he had started doing that going off Broadway and did a, an early production of his great play, The Blood Knot with James Earl Jones off Broadway. But now in the 80s, he was going to the Yale Repertory Theater where Lloyd Richards was now the artistic director and also running the drama school. And he would do his plays there, sometimes with students in the cast, always with students assisting in the production. And I was drawn to go there partly to work with Athel, which I got to do on several productions and was his, his assistant on the premiere of his play, A Lesson from Allos. And so that was just an important part of my growing up in my theater experience and wanting to do a certain kind of, of work. And I was also very lucky that I met while I was there at the drama school, the same week that Athel showed up to do his play, August Wilson appeared in New Haven for the first time. Wow. And had with him a suitcase that had four plays in it that had not yet been produced. Ma Rainey, Joe Turner, Jitney, 
maybe just those three, and was completely an open, generous human being who I met there for the first time. And I was able to go to the rehearsal room, watch them rehearse Offenses. Fences was the fourth play. Watch, watch them rehearse Fences with James Earl Jones again in the cast and Mary Alice, uh, directed by Lloyd Richards. And these plays just showed me what theater could be. And uh, being at Yale and having the chance to work with these great playwrights really made me committed to a certain kind of theater and believing in the potential of theater to really change people's lives and change the way people look at the world. Well, that is a wonderful and rich story and how magical it must have been to for you to work with playwrights that you admire so much and watch their plays come to life for the first time, basically. In On Broadway, your film basically glitters and shimmers with star power. You interview a galaxy of legendary stars, Hugh Jackman, Helen Mirren, Ian McKellen, Sir Ian McKellen, excuse me, and oh, and Dame Helen Mirren. Christine Baranski and Tommy Toon to name just a fabulous few. Do you have any favorite, memorable, or funny anecdotes from your conversations with these icons? Well, they were they were all memorable. They were all really fun. The first day that we interviewed actors, we had Hugh Jackman, who now I think is probably the biggest star on Broadway in decades. Like many of these stars, Hugh Jackman is a good friend of Pat Schoenfeld. And I think that's why he agreed to be in the film. I mean, he's also devoted to Broadway and he supported the film from our earliest conversations about it, but he loves Pat. And so one of the reasons he was there was definitely that affection. And we had picked out very specific shows that we were gonna track in this film. They were kind of the 10 or 12 biggest hits that had transformed Broadway, not just been successful, but it sort of moved the needle of the kinds of things that were done. And we were pretty much trying to be very disciplined about sticking to those. Now, Hugh Jackman didn't happen to have been in any of those shows. So I wasn't sure what we were going to talk to him about. And I wasn't sure, well, how useful is this going to be for the film? Hugh Jackman sat down. And after two minutes, I knew that all of my discipline would go out the window because <laughs> he was just a great storyteller and he was a great connector. And he told me something about Broadway. He made helped me understand partly why stars are so important to the ecology that we talked about of how this system holds together and works and that they reach out and they really make a connection with people. And that's what makes them stars. They're a certain kind of artists. They're not just that they're commercially driven or that they're in big movies. They have a talent for connecting with people. It's so funny that you single out Hugh Jackman as an example of somebody who is such an audience connector, because I was thinking about seeing The Music Man, which is one of my favorite musicals of all time. I've been waiting with bated breath for this revival. So I was there. I mean, I obviously wanted to see Hugh. I wanted to see Sutton. I wanted to see the rest of the cast. I, um, but basically, I'm like, this is my one of my favorite musicals. I'm so excited for this. So the woman next to me, you know, I was saying, like, I'm so excited for this. I just... And the woman was like, I'm so excited about this too. But I could tell just from the way she said it that she was excited about Hugh. And the second the overture started, like even before Hugh appeared, everybody's clapping along, singing along. I mean, it was like being at a rock concert, a Broadway equivalent of a rock concert. And when he came out, it was clear that anything he did, the audience, like I think the running time of that show 
I think just some applause for Hugh alone. You have like 10 or 20 minutes <laughs> of running time added to because anything he did, the audience was going crazy. And what was also a joy was seeing how much he and Sutton Foster were enjoying performing together. Like you, you oh. as an audience member, you feel that. And it's so exciting to see that radiant energy it, the you know, joy, the, stage. the joy they bring to their work, and the the love that he has for the process of what he's doing, was something that he brought to the interview that he did with us. And he just, it just, you know, it explodes out of the camera that this guy is is you know loves his work and has that unique ability to connect with people. Well, one of my other favorite interviews from the film is Christine Baranski because she's rhapsodizing about how going to the theater is a complete experience. Where is the devil in Evelyn? In the theater, you have to be present. You have to be present as an artist and you have to be present as an audience member for the experience to really happen. And when you see a great performance, it is a spiritual experience. The footage that you had when she was speaking, it was it was from the House of Blue Leaves that she did with Susie Kurtz and John Mahoney, directed by Jerry Zaks. And I remember seeing that on American Playhouse, you know, ages ago and falling in love with that play. And I'm wondering, just because I'm such a super fan of that play and that specific production, did you pick footage of, select footage of that production because you're also a House of Blue Leaves super fan? Or am I just dreaming that that may be possible? I'm a super fan of that production. And I remember, <gasps> I remembered her performance, how incredibly moving it was. And then I was so shocked to discover that it had been filmed. And then it was very, very hard to track down that footage. It was one of the hardest pieces to find. And we got fairly low quality version, which we were not able to use that much of. But even having that snippet, you see the brilliance of Christine Baranski as an actor. And although we know her for television, she is quintessentially a great stage actor. Oh, yes. Which is one reason, you know, great directors loved her. Mike Nichols loved her and cast her whenever he could and stayed very dear friends with her to the end of his life. You know, she's friends with other great stage actors who, you know, share this this incredible love. That moment in the film where there's footage of the Mary of the what was the theater that was turned torn down for the Helen Hayes. Helen Hayes. And then you see the reaction shots of people with tears in their eyes and it just and those were the all protests. the greatest, the greatest Broadway stars of that era. Were there. Colleen Dewhurst, did I see Colleen Dewhurst in there? Jason Robards, Kevin Klein, yeah. um, Patti LuPone. I mean, many, many great stars all turned out to support trying to save those theaters. Because again, Broadway means something to these artists. It's not just real estate. It's, it's not just a word, yeah. It's, it's this history that the, is what gives meaning to what they do. One of the surprises of our interviews was Ian McKellen, who is an actor I've always loved, but I wasn't exactly sure, again, how were we gonna fit him in the film? Another good friend of Pat Schoenfeld, who when I was coming over to London and I called and said, hi, Pat, I'm working with Pat on this film. He said, oh, of course, I'll make time. It happened that he was in King Lear at the time, which meant every night he had to put this mountain of a play on his back and and go out on stage for four hours but he was still happy to come and spend a couple of hours with us that afternoon and talk about his memories of broadway and i knew that he'd been in amadeus the great peter schaffer play that was an important part of our story because it was one of the first non-musical plays to be a hit and help broadway come back in the 70s 
But beyond that, I wasn't really sure, what am I going to ask this guy about? Like I had some sort of general questions, but I went into the interview not really sure where it was going to go and trying to, you know, keep my, my expectations in check. Well, I don't know what me and McKellen is like as an actor to work with, but in this instance, he either was very prepared or somehow has an incredible intuitive sense, but he sat down and basically for about an hour and a half, he told one story after another, as if he'd known what the script of my film was, as wow. if he knew what were the moments, not so much even about Broadway, but about New York City. The co-star of this film with the Broadway theater is New York City and how New York City was transformed during these years. And Ian seemed to have a great moment to bring each of those turning points for the city alive. That was really a, a, a wonderful opportunity to have to sit down with an artist like that who had so much to share. One other interview I should say a little bit about is the August Wilson interview, which I mentioned earlier that I'd been lucky enough to go to drama school when he was there doing his, his first plays. A number of years later, this now we're talking about more than 20 years ago, I set out to make another documentary that was gonna be about playwrights looking for their voice. And we were looking for a young playwright on the brink of success who would then we would follow as they developed their play. And the first place we started was the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in New London, Connecticut, which for the last maybe 70 years has been the place that great American playwrights have gone to as a kind of laboratory to, to work on their plays and be discovered and find a path that often leads to Broadway. One of the first interviews that I did for that film was to go and interview August. And he was very, very open and told about his childhood and talk, talked about his development as a playwright and the experience of doing many of the plays he'd done. And unfortunately, we weren't able to use the interview in the film that that ended up turning into. Because as I said, we were looking for a playwright discovering their voice and we discovered Susan Laurie Parks, who was in the process of trying to bring her play Top Dog Underdog to the stage. And once we sort of got on that train and Susan Laurie said, oh, come along and film us, that became so encompassing that we didn't really have room to go back and tell this history and include this fabulous August Wilson interview. So I, it's one of those moments as a filmmaker where you realize you have something that's like a, a gold mine and you've just got to sort of put it aside and try to save it for another day. And I always wanted to do something with that interview. And when the opportunity came up to do this film and we we're thinking, well, what are we going to say? The musicals are kind of easy to do because you can show the archive and it all works well. A clip from a Broadway musical just translates very easily. But how do you translate a play and the process of a playwright to a documentary? And fortunately, I had this fabulous interview with August where he talked about that process and what he tried to accomplish on stage. And uh, we were very lucky to be able to use it in this film. I'm glad the footage found the perfect home at the perfect time. I have shared a couple of my favorite moments in the film. What is your favorite moment or moments? Well, I mean, you have to see it to really appreciate it. But my favorite moment has got to be, again, going back to Ian McKellen, when he describes the posters for the plays that were on Broadway in the season he was doing Amadeus. And he get, and we we cut through the different posters that were on where it's, I think it's um, Amadeus and Vida, I think. Vida, and, and all of the posters, the star has got their arms out to you like this. And Ian McKellen mm -hmm. says, that's Broadway. You're going to come and you're going to love me. And, and that's <laughs> such a great moment. And it really defined the mixture of showbiz 
and deep feeling that's behind everything that happens in the theater. That was so incredibly profound and delicious, that observation that he made about that, because when you think of like the ending of almost any, at least a classic Broadway musical, the big production numbers always end with the arms in the air and, you know, the big smiles. And it's, it's like the, the equivalent of star power and charisma and electricity and fireworks. And it's just, uh, when he said that, I thought, wow, he is... But as an actor, it's so honest. It's like he's saying, this is what it's really about. Yeah. It's about love me. I want yeah. you to love me. You've got to love me. Yeah, and, and, and kind of putting it all out there, giving 2 million percent, not even 100 percent. Um, you touched on Top Talk Diaries, the Susan Laurie Park series, that film that you did as part of our stage on screen series, which aired on PBS, which was produced right here at the WNET group. And I know that you produced some other documentaries related to theater that have aired on PBS. Can you talk a little bit about them? Yes, I mean, again, I've been, to use a theatrical metaphor, I always compare the work of a documentary filmmaker, I call it the, the Blanche Dubois profession, because you <laughs> end on the kindness of strangers. That's mm -hmm. how documentary filmmakers thrive. And I've been very, very lucky in that certain films have found me where people have brought me ideas or come to me with things. And one of them was very early in my career, I met an English film producer, Sarah Beale, and it came out that we both had incredible enthusiasm for Sam Shepard, the playwright. We both knew that Sam was coming to New York City to do a season of his work at the Signature Theater, one of the early seasons of the Signature. And so Sarah said, why don't we do a film about Sam? And I said, oh, well, you'll never convince the guy. He avoids publicity, he's uh, antisocial, he won't talk to anybody, <laughs> he'll never make a film. She said, oh, we'll leave it to me. And Sarah is an amazing, charming person. And she went and found Sam and sat down with him. I didn't think it hurt that she was British um, and persuaded him and said, oh, we'll do it for the BBC. And we had no connection to the BBC, but once she had Sam, we went to the BBC and we went to PBS and we said, we want to do a film about Sam and tell his life story through these plays that he's going to do in this one season in New York. And we went on, they backed the film. Sam showed up as promised. He incredibly honestly and in a very moving way sat down with us and told us really his life story and the process of doing his plays. And then we were able to intercut that with footage from these performances in this work and show some of it, a lot of it in rehearsal with some great theater influences of his like Joe Chaikin, the avant-garde director who he collaborated with on one of the productions that year and some other great directors and actors. And so that film became Sam Shepard stalking himself, uh, which took its name from his autobiography. And that aired on our Great Performances series, if I'm remembering correctly, yeah. which is actually celebrating its 50th anniversary, believe it or not, in November. I was very, very lucky in, at that stage of my career. Again, it was early in my career. And Jack Venza, who people often forget about, but who really, I think, transformed television and transformed the arts in America by realizing that television wasn't really sharing with people the best artistic accomplishments of our country. And he set out, particularly he loved the theater, and he set out to find ways that, even as a kid, I was going to Broadway, but I was also watching, he had a series called Theater on America that was on WNET and I think got onto PBS, that had regional productions of great plays. And you'd see classics like Cyrano de Bergerac, or you'd see a, a Chekhov play from the ACT Theater in San Francisco, directed by Bill Ball. And these great theaters with great actors like Blythe Danner, who I think was in that production of The Seagull. 
And that was one of the things that made me love theater and made me think you can combine theater and film in interesting ways and made me want to do these films. And one of the other great opportunities I got, thanks to Jack and to Glenn DeBose, who was his wonderful colleague. At, I remember Glenn, at, yeah. At great performances and at, at Channel 13, just doing arts programming. So another great break I got to do a film about theater was when one of the founders of the Royal Shakespeare Company, John Barton, he came to me in the late 90s because he was coming to New York to do a series of workshops at the public theater. Kevin Klein had invited him to come to New York to share with American actors some of the great secrets that he developed over the years, working with a generation of the greatest British Shakespearean actors. People like Derek Jacobi, Ian McKellen, Judy Dench, Peter O'Toole, Patrick Stewart. And for the first time in about 30 years, Barton and Peter Hall were talking to each other. They came to New York and someone had effected a reconciliation with these two sort of tyros of British theater who'd sort of fallen out over the years at the RSC. And they were back together and they both agreed to be in a documentary to help share with American actors some of these great secrets they had of how to make Shakespeare understandable and give actors an edge and how to really perform it and be moving doing Shakespeare. And so we were able to draw a wonderful, again, all-star cast that included Kevin Klein, Rock Dutton, David Hyde Pierce, Leah Schreiber, and many more who performed speeches for Shakespeare and then were kind of tutored by Barton on how to do it in a way that would really connect with audiences. And that film was The Shakespeare Sessions, which was also on stage on screen for PBS. Wonderful. I wonder if, that, if that's available for streaming, or I mean, I know it was a while we, ago. Just or it's about to be. We are, uh, Kino Lorber, who, who distributed on Broadway is about to do a streaming re-release of the Shakespeare Sessions. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Thank you for thank you for sharing this exciting news that it, you know Lorber is releasing it. Okay, so we both have already spoken about The Music Man and how much we loved it. What other current Broadway shows have you been recommending to friends and what upcoming shows are on your must-see list? Well, I, I mean, I just have to say the standout for me this year, this comeback season has been The Music Man. I mean, Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster, we are so lucky to have them. They are just, the, and as you say, the joy they bring to every moment they are on stage, it's what the theater is all about. I'm really looking forward coming up to Tom Stoppard's new play, Leopoldstadt, in which he discovers as a playwright, as an older man, he for the first time sort of writes about his Jewish identity and confronts that in light of his family's history in the Holocaust. And it's supposedly a very moving production coming from London. Another production, surprisingly, coming to London. But then the British have always loved our Arthur Miller more than America has. And so the new production of Death of a Salesman with African-American actor Wendell Pierce in the lead is coming to Broadway, which I'm really looking forward to. Wendell Pierce is one of our great, great actors. And it's you know a great American play, which I think is always ripe for, for reconsideration and will be very interesting to see what, what they do with that. There's also a revival of August Wilson's The Piano Lesson um, with Samuel L. Jackson, which I think we can't miss, Samuel L. Jackson appearing again on Broadway, and a revival of Top Dog Underdog, which we talked about is a play yeah, that I'm yeah. yearly and, and uh, so happy for Susan Laurie that this great play of hers, which I think the New York Times called the greatest play of the 21st century so far is going to be um, it's going to be coming back to Broadway. 
Wonderful. Okay, let's wrap up with a fun question. I always, I always like to toss in a fun question that's sort of like, you know, dessert. Okay, are you ready, Oren? Yes. If you could bankroll a revival of any Broadway play or musical, what show would you produce and who would your dream cast be? Okay, so <laughs> this is a great question, but I will confess to you, I've actually lost sleep you know, because <laughs> you you warned me that you might ask this question. And yeah. so I was sort of up at night thinking, well, no, no, what about that play? And what about that? <laughs> and so I decided to make it, you know, as I did with this film, I broke it down to the commercial and the artistic. And I was thought, well, I looked at the plays that were the most successful plays, not musicals that had been done on Broadway. And I said, if I was a very cynical producer, I would pick like a silly slapstick play mm. and you know, you'd be shocked if you read what plays make the most money and run the longest and maybe put a star in it who's like a TV star or a movie star and just go with it and let it do. But then I said, no, 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 no. Remember, Broadway has to be about the art side, too. And that's what I really care about. It will give me the deepest pleasure and satisfaction. So I thought about the great plays and I thought about well, what hasn't really gotten its fair shake on Broadway. And when I was the Yale Drama School, one of the most popular plays that people talked about and loved was The Three Sisters by Chekhov. And I think in every drama school, wow. that's the play because it's the play, as someone once said, it may not be the best play ever written, but it may be. Uh, it's definitely a showcase for great, great actors. Yeah. And so what I did was I thought, well, what if we try to cast The Three Sisters from some of the amazing actors who were in my documentary or in On Broadway? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> And so I came up with two of the three sisters and then we pulled in a ringer. But I think Helen Mirren, Christine Baranski, and Meryl Streep. Now I'm also <gasps> playing the game as if we can do these people at any age. So we're picking them, <laughs> they're all the right age to play Masha, uh, Anya, and Irina. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it'd be a hard thing between Helen Mirren and Meryl Streep for, for Masha, but I think Helen Mirren would probably be my Masha. And, uh, and then I think John Lithgow would be fabulous as their younger brother, Andre. Um, Perfect. I think Ian McKellen could be a great for Sheenan, um, opposite Helen Mirren, or maybe, and I think that's right. And then Hugh Jackman as Tusenbach, who's sort of the comic, mm. sad husband of, of uh, the other husband, the husband in the play. And we bring in a few more ringers Christopher Walken, who's a great actor who we couldn't get for on Broadway, but I would love to put it cast in anything, could play Solyoni. John Malkovich, who I would bring in, but have him play one of the Russian officers. I think an all-star cast of Three Sisters, the way sort of the showcase, the great showcase of Laurence Olivier when he was starting the National Theatre in London was to do The Three Sisters. And I think doing an, an American production of, of this play on Broadway would be a great, great thing to pull off. And I'm sure well, there's- this is brilliant. There are younger actors today who could come and equally rise and, and be cast in those parts, but it's a play that deserves to be revisited. Um, this needs to happen. I think, I think you know, this this was like sort of like a fun ha-ha kind of question, but I think this needs to happen. I would not only see this, I would have to see this multiple times. <laughs> now with digital, ABBA just did a comeback concert where they had avatars playing ABBA on stage. We could get all of these actors and we could make them whatever age we want them to be and they could perform that way on Broadway and in that way they could be age appropriate for their roles in Three Sisters. Well, you heard it here first, everybody. The Three Sisters with Helen Mirren 
Meryl Streep and Christine Baranski. Christine Baranski. I'll drink to that. Okay. And one for Chekhov. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Oren, and for the terrific conversation. On Broadway will premiere on 13, your New York City PBS station, on Tuesday, August 16th at 8 p.m. Check local PBS listings to find out when the film is airing on a PBS station near you. Thank you to our audio engineer, Josh Broom, our executive producer and editor, Dana McBride, and our production coordinator, Rita Grafeo. And to all of our lovely listeners out there, thanks for spending time with us. Please join us for another episode of WNET Up Next. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us at upnext at WNET.org and do become a subscriber. It's free. What's not to love? I'm Elisa Lichtenbaum.